This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew. Welcome to the Craft Beer and Brewing Podcast. I'm your host, co-founder and editorial director of Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine, Jamie Boder. The guests on the podcast today are Derek Galanosa and Corey Meyer of Moxa Brewing in Rockland, California, the greater Sacramento area. Uh, welcome to the podcast, guys. Hey, thanks, Jamie. Thank you. Uh, you may know Derek. We've written about him in the magazine in the past uh, for one of his former gigs. We won't need to talk about that because he left it right after we wrote the story. And uh, by the time the magazine was out, he'd already announced that he was going to, to brew for, for Moxa. Uh, thank you for that, by the way. Yeah, many apologies later. You know, I'm glad we could finally sit down and talk about John it. Hall still holds it against you. He's, staring, he's glaring at you from the back right now. Oh, yeah. yeah he's giving us the evil eye right now. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but no, thank you. Thank you for joining us on the podcast. Uh, you know, you've uh, developed a reputation for brewing some really interesting, creative, and uh, forward-thinking both barrel-aged beers and uh, pastry or adjunct-inspired beers, uh, doing a lot with coffee and other ingredients, uh, and I can't wait to talk to you about that. Yeah, let's go. Uh, but first, as the brewing industry's premier choice for glycol chilling, G&D Chillers has set the standard on quality, service, and dedication to their customers' craft for 25 years, GD has led the way with innovative solutions that match the brewing customers' immediate and future needs. With a wide selection of custom built chillers, GD offers the Nano Chiller, the perfect solution for nano breweries, all the way up to the larger capacity units like the Vertical Air Chiller, built for high volume operations. Contact GD Chillers today for your chiller sizing needs at 1 800 555 0973 or reach out online at gdchillers.com. Also, the SS BrewTech founders launched with a very clear goal to advance brewing equipment design, performance, and quality to the very highest standards in the industry. With a team that draws upon strong functional backgrounds in brewing science, mechanical engineering, and industrial design, supply chain, and manufacturing, SS BrewTech has the people and skill sets you want and expect from your supplier of pro brewing equipment. Head over to SS BrewTech for more information on their brew houses and brewing gear. Cool. Derek and Corey. So let's talk a little bit uh, uh, about how you have uh, developed your own approach to uh, you know beers you're best known for, which are uh, generally adjuncted stouts of various kinds. What led you, uh, and, and obviously you make a whole bunch of different kinds of beer. You really love brewing uh, Pilsner. You love brewing hoppy beers. Um, and yet it's really been those adjuncted stouts that have put Moxa, first abnormal and then Moxa now, on the map, uh, you know, with you manning the brew house, what brought you to it, and uh, uh, you know, what uh, what excites you about brewing beers in those styles? I think it was just having something that was a little bit different, a little bit out there, and creating different flavors and layers of flavor um, from a base beer. Uh, I have a lot of chef friends, uh, and also the previous brewery was in a nice restaurant, uh, taking the inspiration from the culinary world and seeing what they could do about putting flavors together uh i want to take into the the brew house and uh do that with some of the and making beers just a little bit more exciting uh so it really kind of stemmed from uh just having that need to create uh a different style a different um flavor and just kind of jazz up a bunch of different base styles <laughs> jazz it up when you say exciting i mean why what makes those beers more exciting well if you think about when people release a bunch of different variants 
what goes first. It's usually the ones that have all the crazy ingredients of it, different flavors, additions. Uh, that's why not just make those in a why, sense. Yeah, yeah. Why, why is that the thing for consumers? Why do consumers get drawn to that? Is, is it because, you know, it's the rarest of those releases? Is it because, you know, or is it because there's some interaction of these ingredients that, uh, you know, people find compelling or do they have this kind of touchstone to these things because they're familiar with these flavors from other uh, non-beer beverages? I think with over 7,000 breweries in the country, you know, that need to stand out and be relevant and put a little bit more effort into your beer, uh, I think goes a long way and really shows with the sales of those particular um, beers out there. And uh, yeah, we it takes about twice as long uh, doing those treatments. Um, but I think uh, it's something that we're really proud of producing, just having those flavors that would normally not be in the beer and making them work in uh, the base yeah. styles that you're doing. Let's, uh, you know, let's, I'd love to kind of delve deeper into this. Uh, and I think the first place to delve into is how do you construct a base stout uh, that can stand up to these kinds of heavy ingredient treatments um, that, that produces the right kind of flavor complement to them uh, but doesn't overstep them at the same time doesn't get overpowered when you start adding things that have you know other perceptions of uh, you know that may heightened uh, perceptions of sweetness in and of themselves so you know where do you start then with that kind of base beer uh, we start backwards so what's the goal the end goal of this beer what additions are we trying to add and then we create a base style for that for Our, each for each different one with the additions that you plan for it yeah how okay. where we want the finishing gravity to be uh also the roast profile yeah. um, and the ABV, uh, those, all those elements kind of go and interact with what you're trying to add into the beer. Okay. So if we're going to add coffee, then we'll make it a little, we could have a little bit of a sweeter base style because coffee has cutting elements. Same thing with cacao nibs. Uh, and then when we actually add maple syrup or vanilla or coconut, which has kind of a sweetness or perceived sweetness, then we'll dry out the beer a little bit more knowing that we're going to have that. So the whole goal is to have a drinkable drinkable big beer uh, yeah. that's not too sweet, not too dry, just kind of you get all the flavors uh, and certain... When you're, yeah, when you're building those kind of grist bills, I mean, uh, you know, you're talking about small, relatively small changes because you're talking about very strong malts. Like how much, you know, in, in that grist bill would it change with, uh, you know, a roastier malt versus, uh, you know, more chocolatey malt or, or, or some of those characters? So if we're adding coffee, that, that will have that roast characteristic right. that we're trying to add to it. And depending on how much coffee that we're going to add uh, will depend on how much roast roasted barley yeah. or roasted grains that we're going to add in the base beer. Uh, so knowing that our end goal is a coffee beer, or something with uh, some roast elements, then we'll kind of dial it back at the beginning, knowing yeah. that it'll kind of add to that uh, at the end. A couple of percent or 5% or? I mean, we're going down, uh, that's 1%, yeah. uh, 0.75. I mean, we're okay. going for roasted barley, it's 1.8% or so of our grist bill. Uh, we'll probably cut that in half or so. Okay. But the, uh, the changes and differences from beer to beer, maybe as much as 10 to 20% of the grist, um, depending mm. on how we really want to take that beer towards the end goal that we have in mind. Do you make base malt changes uh, for the same kind of reason, or you stay pretty consistent with that? Yeah, we've, uh, we've really experimented with quite a few different base malts, um, especially when we do uh, the collaborations that we do. Um, we really try to incorporate um, what the visiting brewery, uh, what they like to use, and try yeah. to incorporate our recipes together and uh, make something unique. How much does that that, that change, uh, you know, the profile of the end beer? 
Uh, sometimes we do want to add, uh, say, for example, our base uh, 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 malts would be two row. Maybe yeah. adding a little bit of Marisaga would kind of have a little toasty characteristic to sure. it. Uh, just and once again, going back to working backwards, depending on what the end goal is, do we want that toast, extra toastiness to it? Um, and really, it's just trying to combine, especially for collaborations, uh, what our two styles are and what the end goal is. When you're making some calculations around this, are you doing this mentally, or do you have, uh, say, you know, a kind of, uh, you know, a thumbnail for what you know, kind of bitterness contribution, or you know, what perceived kind of IBU, uh, you know, this kind of coffee roast might add? Um, you know, is this more art, or do you have a, a little bit of, uh, you know, shorthand science on it? I wouldn't say we're really breaking out the calculator for these or anything, yeah. but um, just from having made as many of these as we have, um, having sort of a general idea of, okay, we're going to add uh, so many pounds of coffee to this beer, we'll dial the uh, these particular malts back um, by as much as we just feel is appropriate. Yeah. Um, so it, I guess you'd say it's more of just um, going by the feel rather than uh, the numbers. Yeah, and I agree with that. It's just, uh, you know, off a trial and error, it's like, hey, next time when we uh, we'll take this this uh, this recipe and we'll tweak it this much if we're going to add this particular ingredient. Right. So it's just uh, it's it's been a learning process for the past year, uh, just making stouts time after time, and we have dedicated uh, tanks right now. Uh, we always have to have one going uh, just to keep it on the board. People are coming <laughs> to the visit. Fans want it. That's, that's, yeah, we got to we got to give them their hazy IPAs and uh, pastry stouts. I mean, that's why they're coming over to the Moxa. We do incorporate other styles, but we got that, that's the priority for us. And by making so many, uh, we're able to just kind of develop what we want and kind of a strategy, a set strategy going into certain uh, adjuncts or treatment uh, processes. Let's talk a little bit about that. Uh, you know, so so we've got a, an idea for a base stout and how you dial that in. Um, as you're, how do you conceive of combinations of ingredients, and then how do you move from that combination of ingredients to actually sourcing what's available to you at a commercial scale? Because you can't necessarily just go down to the local store and buy all that you need. And there, you know, those potential ingredient changes, and then building a, you know, the uh, the idea of the combination, and then figuring out those quantities uh, you know, that you're going to blend and then measuring against those and figuring out are they extracting the way I expected them to and how do I need to, you know, to tweak this. Tell me a little bit about how that process looks for you guys. Uh, yeah, it's definitely trying to find the quantity that we want. Um, we do uh, reach out you know, for certain people that ask us questions. We'll kind of go back and forth. I mean, that's a whole collaborative uh, yeah. um, you know, thing that we have going on with our circle of friends. Uh, but we... Um, it all gets inspired from some type of flavor combination that we had in the past uh, yeah. or something that we feel that can work together. Uh, as far as quantity, um, it's really when we treat the beers, it's a combination of time, quantity, and temperature. Uh, so certain um, ingredients extract at different uh, temperatures or what we want uh, uh, to get out of it. Uh, also, uh, whether we have to toast it to bring out more flavor and aroma. Uh, but really, it's it's knowing the quantities, the, the temperature, and how long we want to uh, treat the beer with. So, uh, for example, uh, vanilla. Uh, we use real vanilla beans, and we're actually yeah. getting into different origins of vanilla and what they could bring out and contribute to the beer. That's right. You did a beer called Vanilla Three Ways, right? Yeah, exactly, where we had three different uh, varieties. So tell me a little bit about, from a sensory perspective, what those different kind of uh, vanillas are and, and what you felt uh, they added to the beer. Oh, I'll, I'll let Corey try it. Yeah. Talk on that one. Uh, well, for, for that beer in particular, um, I believe we used a mixture of Ugandan, Tahitian, and uh, I think Madagascar vanilla beans. Yeah. Um, and those were selected 
um, just um, from what they're going to bring to the beer. Uh, from the Ugandan, we really see like a nice, rich, earthy spiciness. Um, uh, lends a lot of complexity. Uh, the Madagascar is more of that classical, like vanilla extract, candied vanilla type of flavor. Um, and we find the Tahitian is somewhere in the middle, nice and rich, um, very robust flavor. Um, and uh, we just chose to combine those three. Um, and that's something that we uh, are really trying to delve into is not just using something like vanilla, or we're using varietal vanillas, or with cacao nibs, we're sourcing them from um, uh, all over the world, depending on those characteristics that we want to bring, and just diving a little bit deeper into the origins of ingredients and trying to eke out a little bit more complexity that way. Tell me about those cocoa nibs then. I, you know, I'm curious, like, what, you know, how do those produce different flavors, you know, ultimately in beer? And, uh, and what have you found from some of your experimentations with them? Uh, luckily, we have a local roaster that uh, kind of gave us a, a rundown of the, the different varieties that they produce. Uh, so we have a local roaster um, that goes down and sources them themselves, hmm. uh, trains farmers down there to cultivate, and, you know, at the end, they're getting the, the, the product at their end and uh, roasting in Korean candy bars and cacao nibs, but uh, giving us a selection of different uh, origins and seeing, taste them together and seeing, hey, do we want to use this particular one, a combination of it? We'll get more caramel from this. We'll get more bitter chocolate type uh, characteristics from that, more earthiness, uh, and seeing what else we're going to blend with the beer and going a little bit deeper in the, into those ingredients uh, and seeing how it, it'll extract and work with whatever beer it is or whatever uh, other uh, products that we're putting in there. Do you have any kind of test process or, or how does how do you go through that or do you just taste in a, ahead of time and uh, think that they're going to end up this way and then uh, throw them in a tank and uh, see what comes out from the back end? Well, our primarily probably just smelling, tasting. Um, you can get a pretty good gauge of what you're going to get out of a cacao nib just by smelling and, and eating it. Um, with uh, some of our ingredients, we do do a lot of small trial dosing rates. Um, we'll you know, uh, do a measured amount of a certain ingredient and do a, a, a steep and try to emulate what we're going to get out of it. And yeah. we may tweak our dosage rate um, or the varietal based on the results of that. You know, in the middle of the process, you know, how do you make those calls as the beer is developing? Um, you know, to, to you know whether this is gonna this is doing what you expect it to do or whether you need to make some changes along the way, uh, either amp stuff up or add other, more of another ingredient to counterbalance you know, something else that's come out a, a little bit too strong. Uh, luckily, with our treatment setup, we have it running, uh, recirculating through an external vessel oh, with okay. all the ingredients. Uh, we have a little sample port, and because it is recirculating, it's, right. it's a good... Uh, you get a good idea of what the whole beer tastes like by just sampling off. And, uh, yeah, over time, you know, we taste it every morning to see where it is. And if we need to add more, we could uh, actually open up the uh, uh, safely and yeah. CO2-purged environment, right, right. Uh, open up safely, add more ingredients, um, and also possibly take it away uh, if we do feel that combination um, is kind of going in one way, uh, one direction. Um, so one of the recent one was, uh, I think, the vanilla three-way is we added more vanilla to it um <laughs> yeah, just because like hey if it's gonna like, say it vanilla, vanilla on the label it's gonna yeah, taste like vanilla yeah, exactly right? yep. so yeah if we uh came in i was like oh, it's been a few days uh not getting as much vanilla let's add more you know so through <laughs> another couple hundred or a couple thousand what led you to that kind of recirculation uh you know approach to adding adjuncts 
Uh, it was uh, back in the previous there is, period. I mean, there is some danger when you start pumping stuff that uh, you can introduce oxygen into the system. Um, you know, there are good pumps, but not, nothing's 100% necessarily. Um, you know, that becomes a little middle, little riskier to, to constantly recirculate, wouldn't it? Oh, most definitely. And just, just having these uh, technical... Uh, um, processes of making sure the clamps are tied and uh, yeah. making sure everything's purged. Uh, we kind of overdo it at times with the uh, the CO two. Just you know, let it run and just yeah. make sure all the ox- ox- uh, excuse me oxygen's out there. Um, but uh, yeah, it's just being careful and really keeping that in mind because it's a, a true danger. You're working yeah. with the entire tank of you know expensive stout uh, or uh, kettle sours that we uh, uh, treat. And uh, we got to make sure that we're not ruining the beer. So it's really just uh, being mindful of uh, what we're doing and, you know, no shortcuts. Yeah. Yeah, we, uh, it's definitely something that's always kind of in the back of our mind and can be a little scary at times. Um, and we're, uh, we're here at CBC right now actually shopping for a gentler pump and a, uh, a better infusion vessel and yeah. just trying to step up those little incremental things that we, can, we think we can do better. Well, that's interesting. Um, you know, versus just adding straight into a tank or, uh, uh, you know, how does the using that recirculation vessel uh, improve the overall extraction or shorten the time of that? Uh, and, you know, or one or both of those reasons, the, you know, the, the, the point of doing it that way? It's really just the agitation of it, just pumping it okay. through um, and getting some movement. Uh, you can do it in the tank, and I mean, you kind can of, roust a tank. Yeah, with you can CO2 burst also. it. Yeah, you can I do mean, that. You can do the same. Why? Why go into that kind of recirculation approach? Uh, we can add a lot of ingredients, uh, and also the yield would be better as okay. well um, by having an external vessel. And after it's all done, just pushing it with CO two back into the tank. We're not worried about having bags of coconut yeah. soaking up liquid okay. and all that. So uh, it really and helps. So with you're the yield keeping as well. those ingredients in the infusion tank, and you're not pumping out into the main tank from the infusion tank. Correct. Yeah, the, okay. the ingredients are staying okay. in the uh, the treatment vessel, okay. uh, and we're just pushing it out at the very end, and out we just dump out whatever we have in there, <laughs> which I think you posted yeah. a, a picture of as well. Probably. Uh, yeah. Probably, yeah. <laughs> yeah. We uh, we're just trying to get the maximum surface area contact of our ingredient with the beer as possible, and I think by constantly moving that beer over it, um, I think we're achieving that. Yeah. How do you? What kind of pre-processing do you do on things like vanilla, cocoa nibs, coffee, etc.? In order to, I mean, you know, you could theoretically get maximum extraction by you know turning it into a powder, um, you know, but that's also going to be a, a not necessarily produce the kind of liquid that you want to you know produce from it. Um, where's that fine line between uh, you know uh, getting the right character out of these things versus uh, also producing the kind of beer that you want to produce? Well, uh, every ingredient's a little bit different, sure, um, and. I think uh, we kind of take it on a case-by-case basis. Uh, we definitely want to get the most surface area we can. So a lot of things like nuts and coconut, um, we want to get as small particles we can. Um, but there's a trade-off. If we go too fine, now we are clogging our infusion vessel or we're creating channeling, which is going to reduce our extraction. Um, right. Or, uh, or it's going to create uh, just mud. If we, use, if we use like a nut flour, it would... Um, it would pass through that vessel and just create a, a mess, and we um, then we have packaging issues. So um, probably as fine as we can get away with is the short answer. Yeah. And also as far as some of the pretreatment, uh, roasting as soon as possible or as close as possible to actually using it, um, 
uh, both bringing out flavor and aroma, but also sanitizing it as well. We just purchased a, uh, so I don't have to do it in my home oven. We just purchased a, a, um, a drum roaster uh, that we can infuse, uh, we can put in there different coffee. If we want to do our own coffee, but cacao nibs, coconut, uh, nuts. Uh, so that's, that's, that's something that will save us a lot of time and labor. Um, but doing that, uh, the vanilla, like Corey was saying, is on a case-by-case basis. Sometimes we like uh, spilling them and scraping them. Uh, and then other times we just pulverize it in a little Blendtec blender huh. uh, and then add it into the uh, treatment vessel. Um, kind of still playing around with that, uh, but it really just depends on the beer. For sure, for sure. One sec, uh, you know, since we're talking about ingredients, this is a nice segue. Great beers are made from select ingredients. With BSG, you'll bring the world to your brew house with an unparalleled and diverse selection of ingredients from across the globe to just down the road. Their dedicated customer service team and industry experience provide you with the assistance you need every step of the way. Let BSG be your supplier of choice for products essential to making great artisanal beverages so you can stay focused on your craft. For more information, visit them at bsgcraftbrewing.com or contact them at 1-800-374-2739. Also, we'd like to thank the American Homebrewers Association, a community of homebrewers, and an essential source of brewing tips, recipes, and homebrewing culture. They're great supporters of the podcast and magazine. And if you're not already a member, you can join at homebrewersassociation.org. All right, back to ingredients. Uh, I find this fascinating because, uh, you know, I think you all have an experience of using a, such a diverse you know, range of ingredients, um, you know, in a way that's, you know, pr- pretty progressive and that you're learning um, in a way that uh, a lot of other brewers don't have the same kind of breadth of experience with they brew fewer of these beers and so so it's kind of fascinating to delve in and see uh how you guys use these um tell me about one of your uh uh, an interesting failure or mistake that you've made with an ingredient that you learned from um it's something that you'll never repeat i don't know if we do it on on our scale because we do small dosing uh uh, kind of trials Uh, so if something doesn't work out and there's a few things where you're like like for example uh we were kind of testing out candy cap mushrooms which has a kind of like a maple uh characteristic to it and like that'll be pretty interesting but when we were dosing it um and making like a little tincture and adding it to beer uh yeah it had great maple characteristics but it also had heavy mushroom characteristics which is <laughs> you know what not exactly what we were going for uh so we kind of to lower the risk, do small trials. So there hasn't been really a big failure. Yeah. Maybe some adjustments down the road or, or during the treatment, but uh, as far as uh, complete failure, I don't think uh, we're taking uh, those risks. Uh, Are there any yet. ingredients that you won't use again? Won't use again? Uh, uh, well, we learned maybe to not go so heavy on tart fruit. Um, okay. We did a beer uh, last year that was um, extremely high rate of raspberries and. Uh, uh, is ended up being somewhat of a tart stout, which is a little out there. Um, some people loved it, some didn't so much, and uh, but that's sort of the challenge of trying to always brew the next new thing and keep it interesting, trying not to just rehash the same six ingredients in these beers. And um, it definitely involves a bit of experimentation. Um, and you mentioned earlier about uh, some of the stouts maybe not taking the path that we'd envisioned for them and. Uh, we certainly had a few that um, maybe weren't heading in the right direction. It may have ended up too sweet, too dry for the treatment we had planned for it. Um, but then we just uh, go back to the drawing board, assess the beer, and, and sort of um, uh, make a new plan for it and, and take it in a new direction. And I can't say we've had any serious failures um, by following that method yet. Uh, 
another one is uh, we always try to use real ingredients. I mean, yeah. that's it's going to be the longest lasting, most memorable, and, and it shows the effort on our end uh, of using real ingredients. And one of them was uh, recently uh, hazelnuts. Uh, so we did use hazelnuts. We used it at uh, about seven pounds per barrel, and which was a lot on a 20-barrel tank. And um, the flavor, it was, it was ni- nice and nutty, but it wasn't necessarily hazelnut coming out. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, once again, those were toasted at my house and 150 pounds of it. Um, <laughs> and that took a long time. And to yeah, see that yeah. it didn't really show as much right, uh, compared right. to the other ingredients or, say, for example, almonds, which we love to use. Right. Uh, at, a, at about the same rate, and those come out a lot more. Uh, maybe hazelnuts will kind of throw out the uh, heavy rotation and just kind of a once yeah. in a while thing. So, um, not necessarily failures, but just kind of sure, uh, sure. learning experiences. We still believe in the beer and it's still great, uh, but maybe uh, down the road we'll take a different route. Absolutely. On that subject with hazelnuts, you know, you you put hazelnuts as an ingredient on the label and it creates an expectation, you know, in the mind of the person drinking it or ordering it on a tap menu or buying one of those bottles, that that flavor is going to be there. And that does become, I think, one of the biggest challenges for any of these adjuncted flavor-forward beers. Like, um, the power of suggestion is strong. And that means, you know, if you, from a brewer's perspective, tell a customer that it's got these flavors in it or these ingredients in it, they will find those ingredients in it unless they don't. And when they don't, and if it doesn't meet their expectation for how much of that flavor should be there, then you end up with that kind of cognitive dissonance and the, well, I totally expected this to be more hazelnut and it wasn't hazelnut enough and I'm going to give it three stars instead of four and a half. And, uh, you know, uh, know, that kind of expectation and meeting that expectation, but also, you know, wanting, you know, consumers to uh, enjoy but also reward that experience uh, you know, because you know, a brewery like you does pay attention to those ratings and how people respond to it. How do you, you know, kind of manage that expectation? Um, you know, uh, and then when there is that kind of gap, uh, you know, communicate about that. I think it's strictly through the marketing and uh, setting up people's expectation of what they're going to taste. Right. Yeah, because because you're right. <clears throat> They're not going to taste it unless you tell them. So tell them what you expect them to taste. Uh, so for the hazelnuts, I, uh, I, I you know coach breweries on this all the time through oh, our yeah. brewery workshop events. Like the power of suggestion and the language that you use to describe this beer is incredibly formative and will impact. And if you go back and triangulate against the and read people's reviews of them, they will mention the things that you tell. Like the power of suggestion is so strong in all of these kinds of descriptions. Um, you know, and that's both empowering and uh, you know, a huge responsibility from a brewer's perspective to make sure that they're delivering on those kinds of things. Yeah, for the the hazelnuts, we said real hazelnuts, uh, and we described the flavor that we yeah. were getting. It wasn't coffee or hazelnut coffee type flavor. It was a, a certain nuttiness and a richness, and uh, we incorpor- uh, we felt like it had a different mouthfeel to it uh, rather than just that. Uh, classic hazelnut coffee kind of right. like in your face no it was more it subtle. wasn't the italian uh, uh extract insert oh that yeah they pump it, into yeah. your coffee no it exactly was, right, right. or the vanilla we emphasize the temperature in which you should drink it to bring out more vanilla so yeah, yeah. um they're like you know if, if you're drinking it too cold maybe that will be hidden so we yeah. gave the power of suggestion to hey warm it up you know enjoy it at this level or at this temperature. I think the other thing you said there that uh, was important is you described the flavors. You know, this is, uh, you know, again, something I think that's also incredibly important for brewers out there to not necessarily just talk about ingredients, but also talk about the sensory and the perception. You know? I, I think that's our responsibility as a brewery to 
uh, kind of explain the story behind it. We take so much time and effort to produce these beers. We want to give the customer all the information about it. So when they're breaking out that bottle and during that special occasion, they know a little bit more about it than just the style and the ingredients. We want them to give, uh, we want to give them tasting notes. So uh, all of our, uh, or just about all of our untapped uh, profiles for each beer is a pretty lengthy uh, description of the beer and the processes and uh, what to expect. Uh, uh, who writes all those? I do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we go. definitely, uh, we try to uh, be transparent and educate our customers that, hey, we're, we're not using vanilla extract, hazelnut extract. Right. We don't use maple extract. These beers aren't going to taste like those beers that do. Um, and if we, uh, if we can educate and reach our consumer and let them know that this is exactly the kind of beer that we're putting out and... Um, this is what you're going to experience. Um, I think that there can be an appreciation for the real thing. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit, uh, you know, about barrel-aged beers. I mean, this is something that uh, you uh, drove some hype for back in the abnormal days, Derek, with those and the beers and the like. Uh, and it's something that you're now doing at Moxa as well. But you have a very, um, how do we want to say, uh, uh, Calvinist approach of doing it austerely and correctly in, uh, in what may be, maybe that's a little overblown. You, you uh, find a way to brew these barrel-aged beers in one of the most difficult, challenging, hardest ways possible um, by doing it all in the kettle and doing it with extremely long boils and not adding any additional fermentables after you know, that, that initial boil, um, which leads you to things like uh, crazy long boil times. Um, which also create other uh, challenges as you're, you know, developing, uh, you know, a beer and recipe, you know, because long boil times certainly beat up malt and, you know, change fermentability. Talk to me a little bit about your approach, you know, to, to building these base beers for barrel aging and how and why, you know, you've settled on the approach that you have. So the goal uh, with Moxa was to really get a lot of different beers in the barrels into different barrels so we could blend after the fact, uh, after it's done, yeah. we could kind of get you know, how kind of sour producers uh, blend their sours, we want to do that with stouts. So taking right. a little bit more uh, of a, a stronger uh, barrel presence from this and then a more of a sweeter presence from another barrel. So uh, each one of those different tweaks in those base recipes, uh, we would put um, we would put some uh, of the initial stouts in the barrels. But now we're creating uh, a different base stout specifically for barrels. So it goes in a little bit sweeter so we can have within a barrel kind of thins out a little bit so having a little bit sweeter uh, it can kind of balance out over time to where the barrel presence matches with the viscosity and you know we could use that in our blending efforts Um, it's really just uh, uh, creating variety so in the back end we can uh, have a lot to just pick from and with our once going back to the uh, creating beers uh, in reverse, knowing that we want to create a barrel aged beer with these certain ingredients, let's, let's pick out barrels that are maybe a little bit drier, a little bit sweeter, uh, roast characteristics. So um, just having variety uh, is what uh, we kind of strive for at Moxa. When you say now your your base, you know, barrel aged stout is going in sweeter. What's your uh, what's your gravity goal for stuff going into a barrel? Uh, for the barrels, uh, we try to shoot in the high teens generally. High um, teens. Uh, we've gone as high as i think 19 um that's maybe a little bit more than we (laughs) intended to but uh we're gonna give it as much time as it needs and uh and see if it uh, will mellow out so going into the barrels where's it going into the barrels uh yeah the high teens going in and then uh they may 
thin out a little bit over time um, as they age. Uh, maybe a tiny bit of refermentation or uh, what do you uh, what gravity are you brewing these to? You know, to start with, in order to kind of build these you know these bigger uh, you know stronger beers. Uh, you know, pre fermentation. Uh, pre fermentation, we're around 35, 37. Uh, okay. But we have uh, barrels with beer that finished uh, at about six point six. That was because we were back sweetening the end with uh, maple syrup, real maple syrup. Um, so we wanted to have a little bit of a drier base, and yeah. some of that beer went into barrels just to see what that went, what that does and how we could blend that into other things. Uh, so just having uh, a variety on the board and uh, within our uh, barrel uh, program um, is what we wanted to uh, wanted to do. Yeah, when you're adding you know something like maple syrup as an ingredient to that beer. Um, you know, there's always the potential for additional fermentation if there's any yeast left in there. What, what kind of process do you take to, uh, you know, prevent that from happening and, uh, you know, ruining a maple addition? Uh, well, we had an idea early on that we wanted to attempt a big maple stout. Um, and the plan was to just make it a huge beer. Uh, we're going to completely exhaust the yeast uh, running through that wort. And by the time we um, add that maple in, we, we definitely gave it plenty of opportunity to re-ferment. Um, and it just didn't. Um, we uh, just because it was already at an ABV that uh, you know was pretty toxic to the yeast, and it yeah, that beer was uh, okay. that beer was seventeen percent uh, by the time we added the maple in. Um, it hadn't seen oxygen for maybe a month at that point. Okay, um, and I think that just yeast just never had a chance. Are you doing any kind of temperature manipulation and, you know, crash stuff out, or is it is it just doing it? Uh... Yeah, we, we drop the temperature a little bit just to kind of help the uh, the yeast flock out. Yeah. Uh, and then we'll transfer into a, a bright tank, uh, add some maple syrup, and just kind of give it a couple days see, uh, under yeah. pressure and see if uh, the pressure raises, um, you know, and if there's any off-gassing or whatever. We just let it, right. like, hang out for a bit. Uh, but what we noticed was not a lot of fermentation, so, huh. and the, uh, the uh, flavor characteristics was like mouth coating maple <laughs> you didn't get yeah, a lot yeah. of the aroma because yeah. it, it was real maple syrup it wasn't right, any right. uh extract uh and that wasn't really the goal was to have a big maple aroma but it was it was the taste it was the taste that we mixed uh, you know that's pretty much sugar yeah uh, maple um uh was mixed with uh i think it was uh, coconut uh uh, coffee and uh, vanilla. So all those combinations um, with a 17% imperial stout uh, really came together to where it was drinkable at 17%, um, which is kind of crazy. But yeah, uh, yeah, it actually worked. Uh, it, people are like, "This does not drink like this." Well, because we used um, uh, the finishing gravity. It was a low finishing gravity, but back sweetened with maple syrup, right. which kind of uh, helped with the uh, the high ABV and everything all balanced out, and it worked out well. Any pack- our- yeah, any packaging issues? I mean, uh, you know, that's always the fear when you. Have you know for, uh, still fermentable stuff like that? Uh, you know that something happens, or somebody decides to put it in their eighty-degree car, and uh, you know a little bit of a rogue yeast starts doing its thing. We definitely did give that one a few extra weeks um, uh, in the tank, just yeah. to, uh, to try and encourage any refermentation if it would. Um, that beer's been in the bottle for six, eight months now, oh. um, and no bombs yet. So I. Uh, I like to think that we're successful. Yeah. You know, there's a, that's a question that a lot of brewers face. You know, you, you put beer into a package, and there are different expectations from consumers for that. You know, you, it's hard to say, hey, you, sh- you got to keep this one cold. Although with your hazy IPAs, they should definitely keep that cold. Um, you know, if you put it in a crowler, you, and somebody, you know, you would find people sitting on crowlers or cellaring crowlers now for a year or two years, and it makes me just want to pull my hair out to see that kind of stuff. <laughs> 
um, you know, what's your responsibility as a brewer to a consumer, and, and how, you know, how does time play into that? I mean, obviously, you want to produce a beer that they enjoy drinking, but you know, where, when does your responsibility start and when does it end? Because after a certain point, I mean, you can't be held accountable if someone's got a five-year-old beer and now something weird has happened to that. I think it's with their packaging, all the bottles say drink fresh uh, because certain ingredients that we want right. you to taste will fade away. So uh, that's our recommendation is to drink it fe- fresh. Yeah, some you may want to age longer, but understand that that's not our uh, our, our expectation. Our, our yeah. expectation is to enjoy it now. Uh, with the uh, the crawlers, we do say drink within uh, four days on it. Yeah. Um, so that kind of falls, uh, the responsibility is on the consumer to drink it within the time period that we uh, give them. Uh, if they go beyond that, just having the expectation that, you know, may not taste how we intend right. to. And that's not our fault. But uh, also we, uh, with as far as the re-fermentation and all that, uh, yeah. we're just going to assume that people age things a long time. So having a stable product right. uh, is the rule for us. That's, that's kind of a hard rule. Like we don't want bottle bombs. We don't want uh, uh, exploding um, crawlers. We're not going to put fresh fruit into crawlers. And, you know, <laughs> okay. uh, that's, that's not our thing. That's not our thing, yeah. you know, because yeah. we don't want that coming back at us. So, you know, just, just keep everything, you know, nice and stable and, you know, right. we'll, we'll all have a good time. You know, you know, I mean, that's a question. Certainly, you know, it's, it's, uh, there are some breweries out there that are, are very they are doing that, and they're, but they're also very clear about that, that you have to you know, keep this crowler refrigerated um, and you need to consume it with a certain amount of time because, uh, uh, you know, there are some expectations for beer, I think, that have been set up, uh, generally speaking, by larger breweries, macro breweries, in terms of shelf stability, time, length, you know, and expectations that not everyone should or needs to follow. You know, the idea that beer can't be hazy because then it's less shelf stable, you know, would cut out a pretty exciting and interesting you know sensory experience for people that enjoy drinking beer and there are ways to deliver that to consumers whether that's draft or whether that's with that drink within you know 30 days kind of expectation that produce uh, enjoyable experiences you know and then those would be lost and craft beer would be less creative you know for it but but there is i think like you say still a line there that uh, you know that even for i guess for your brand you don't really want to cross yeah, I think it's. Uh, there's no question that it's every brewery's responsibility to package a stable product. Um, that said, if you're completely open with your consumer, um, and uh, if you do something crazy like package uh, a freshly fruited beer, uh, you, you better be upfront and let people know the expectation of how that beer is going to behave in the package. Sure. How much has uh, you know the the notoriety and, and hype among the kind of beer trading world impacted what you do how you brew and uh, how you approach some of these beers because uh you know you're you've got some you know traders uh you know that have uh, been supporting and promoting your brand and, and, and pushing it out there uh how much does that factor into how you design beers and what you make uh it's a very small niche of our customer base sure. but probably the most vocal right and those are the ones that you want behind your brand right so uh it's it's really seeing their reviews That's and what they want. when yeah. you say it's small like how you know like a percentage of your sales how much would that that super beer nerd audience be 
I'm just assuming it's whoever just buys their bottles. But I mean, <laughs> the uh, <laughs> the uh, because you have to wait, you know, in right, the morning before right. we open up. We kill the, uh, all the bottle sales uh, within a couple hours or so, uh, and then we're done. But those are the people that take their time out right, the day and right. the weekend uh, to kind of wait. Um, we don't have, really have the storage to hold on to uh, products um, properly. Uh, to where we can have a, a multi-day pickup window. So it's just once we package it, we'll uh, set up a release date and just get it out of our brewery. But um, yeah. the majority of our sales are, are in the tap room. Uh, huh. Ninety plus percent are in the tap room, and you know they're they're drinking pints of IPA. That's actually mostly what we produce. Uh, it's only the stouts are kind of a specialty thing that we do, but are widely known for it. Uh, but we we just assume that um, as far as the percentage, it's it's pretty small. Uh, people huh. are. We brew a lot of IPA and we move a lot of IPA and that's our top priority, but we also yeah. uh, see the value in producing these stouts, putting them in packages with nice labels and getting it out there to build our brand and doing events uh, out here uh, or just around the world uh, promoting our brand, but yet we sell most of our beer back at home. Uh, so it's, it's, a, it's a small percentage. Yeah, how much does that perception of quality of the brand get impacted even with your local audience because there is this broader demand from this small but but vocal niche of, of beer nerds around the country from the start we did emphasize that we have uh we want the local following to be our priority uh so we don't have you're not allowed to have any proxies when you pick up uh any of our beer uh, our membership especially uh is catered to locals you had to be uh there in person to sign up uh, you had uh, um, you have to pick up everything in person, so it kind of takes away some of the people that just kind of drive in for those specialty things. We yeah. want our members and our, uh, our our crowd that comes in to be within a certain radius uh, around our brewery. Uh, so the focus is um, the fo- focus is being local, uh, and by explaining that, I think there's a greater appreciation that the majority of what we make is for them. Yeah, we do send out things here and there, but it will always also be tapped at home yeah. uh, for our, custom, our main customer base. You know, there, it's, I find it an interesting one, and I've talked about it before in articles we've written, uh, you know, this idea of marketing nationally to sell locally. Um, the way that that used to be is it used to be, you know, you, you know for the first last you know, uh, 80s through the early 2000s, uh, that meant sending beer to GABF to you know, potentially win a medal for it. Uh, or real World Beer Cup after that, you know, and that was your marketing nationally to sell locally. If you won a medal, it was something you could take back to your local market, and your local press would be like excited that you know now their their local brewery had gained some acclaim from you know national judges. Uh, what I'm really fascinated by today in beer, and that's really popped up in the last four or five years, is we've got two different networks of notoriety now in addition to that, and that's you know either the internet trading market, uh, which is also highly connected, um, which you know moves products up and down very quickly, uh, but also the brewery peer market. You know, where validation for that brewery, your brewery, you know, and the, the uh, quality of what you do is not just, you know, validated by external judges and awards. It's also validated by who you collaborate with and the quality and perceived quality of those breweries. That's something that you've, uh, you know, you've done pretty extensively, you know, choosing, you know, partners to do collaborations with in a way that, uh, you know, both raises profiles of both breweries. Tell me a little bit about that strategy that you employ. 
I think what's great is these uh, uh, invitationals. It's kind of like the same circuit of brewers uh, that go into different uh, markets. How, how do you break into that? How, I mean, how do you even get connected and start into that? That's the the fascinating piece. Like, where is that that entree into this this you know level of brewery? And uh, you know, there are different, I think, circles and spheres within those breweries of folks that work together in certain ways. And then there are some breweries that are working across those various networks. And if I mean, at some point, I want to chart out all of these collaborations and how they intersect and see, you know, because there are some kind of, you know, spokes or like hubs, you know, with a lot of spokes radiating out from them and others, you know, you know, satellites and, and different, uh, you know, networks here. It's kind of fascinating to watch and see how all that happens. Yeah, I get a lot of people saying like, oh, how do you know these people or how can I get these beers at my bar? And it's really go out and meet them, yeah. go out to where they are and have a drink with them and network and then down the road right. it takes time not immediate but you know build those relationship relationships slowly and uh, get out there and drink get out there and <laughs> get out there and be on the bar stools yeah. and uh, get to know the industry the market your customers in person and that's you know it takes some effort we have yeah. a crazy travel schedule but yet yeah, every place that we go we see some uh, like spark an interest from that particular market and people that thank you for coming over to their uh, part of the world. Uh, so it's really just putting in the effort to really get out there uh, and be face-to-face with the customer and explain your product and promote uh, your brand in person. And um, uh, What's that b- uh, brewery budget line item look like for travel to external festivals to places where we don't sell any beer, but somehow this is going to, uh, you know, to improve our bottom line. I mean, that's a weird, you know, expense to incur. It's highly risky. The budget for, yeah. right? But luckily, because of that, we get to sell yeah. 90 plus percent in-house and have higher profit margins uh, to allow us to have these opportunities uh, to accept these invitations and go out there and, you know, um, uh, participate in these events. So it kind of works hand in hand, uh, but yeah, it's it's kind of crazy. It's uh, not every brewery has that in the, in their marketing plan, but uh, we do. And you're not even the worst. I mean, I, I was been watching Mike Palin of uh, you know microphone and his you know travels over the last seven days. It's been absolutely insane. Yeah, he, we were yeah. in New York, and yeah. he was like, "Oh yeah, today it's uh, our second location's opening." Like I was like, "Today?" I was like, <laughs> "Why aren't you there? Why are you in New York?" You know. Yeah, so yeah. Uh, his him. The, the thin back guys, yeah, you yeah. Know, the equilibrium guys, they're everywhere. They're yeah, everywhere. Yeah. I see them way too many times, you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so what's next on the horizon for Moxo? You know, what are you excited about? And, uh, you know, where is your thirst for innovation uh, taking you next? Well, uh, we're, we're at the point right now where we're just starting to see some growing pains at our original location. We're, uh, we're looking at um, expanding in our local market uh, as soon as we can. Uh, hopefully increasing production a little bit. Um, something I think we uh, both have a bit of a passion for is um, making true sour beers. Yeah. And uh, we really look forward to when we have the uh, facility that enable us to do that. Um, true sour beers. Well, we is do a lot of kettle a... sours now, okay. uh, which which are fun. And yeah. uh, we like playing with those. Is, are they not true? Kettle sours aren't true? Well, they, are, they have acid in them. <laughs> But, uh, no, I'm just giving you a hard time. <laughs> yeah, a barrel-aged sour with, with the yeah. complexity that comes with it. Um, sure, sure. And uh, hopefully expanding our barrel or our spirit barrel program uh, greatly as well. And uh, storage is uh, a big problem for us right now. And uh, hopefully we'll be able to expand all our capacity and uh, move into new territory soon. 
Yeah, yeah really, I think it's just the focus is getting the beer out there more to more consumers uh, beyond just our tap room. So opening up a second location, uh, having a little bit more accounts because we have a lot of people that uh, constantly ask for a beer and we have to build a wait list because we yeah. just the tap room is the priority and so being able to have these people that have been asking for since we opened or before right, we opened right. uh, to get some beer in their hands and kind of make that connection and just getting it out there reach new customers uh, I think is the goal right now uh, I think um, as we do that of course the innovation and the, that passion for creating great product and better product uh, is going to continue but really just making more of it uh, and utilizing our brew house uh, more often because uh, we're maxed out on our uh, fermentation space but yet we're not necessarily brewing every day so uh, once we could uh, expand our, our fine storage for all the barrels that we have around our brewery right. uh, we can expand our brewery and produce more beer uh, for not only a second location but uh, additional accounts that makes sense are there anything on the on the creative and brewing side that uh, yeah, in addition to, to traditional sour beers that uh uh, you know, or any ideas that you're looking forward to pursuing? I think, uh, and that, that comes with us being here at CBC, is uh, looking at products or equipment that will allow us to uh, extract more flavor and aroma yeah. or keep more flavor and aroma in our beer. Uh, just seeing what what this industry has to offer as far as uh, innovation, these brewing these uh, particular beers uh, and their treatments. So, um, I guess that's a good point. I mean, you know, some of these... The equipment gets designed and built and iterated and improved because there's a demand for brewing specific styles of beer. Some of this equipment didn't exist 10 years ago because there was no demand or need for it because nobody brewed these styles of beer. Or if they did, they did in very small ways and there wasn't an expectation of intensity. It's kind of interesting to think about ingredients and styles even driving the equipment that uh, the brewing industry then builds and designs to continue that kind of march forward. Yeah, of course. If there's a demand for anything, there's really opportunity to produce whatever product or uh, equipment. Um, and I think that's what we're here to find, to see if who has responded to that demand and uh, to make better product and, you know, it could catch fire. Well, come out and check you guys out in, the, in another six months or so and see what you purchased and uh, see how it's working for you. And in the meantime, we'll just send you some beer so hey. you can drink it at home. <laughs> no problem. <laughs> I always enjoy it. I always enjoy it. Well, Derek and Corey, thanks for joining me on the Craft Beer and Brewing Podcast. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Jamie. It's been thank a pleasure. You. I want to thank our sponsors, uh, G&G Chillers, SNS Brewtech, the American Homebrewers Association, and BSG. So guys, if people want to learn more about Moxa, where can they find you? Uh, you could start following us. We have Facebook and Instagram. It's uh, Moxa, M-O-K-S-A. M-O-K-S-A Brewing on, uh, on Instagram. And uh, you can find us. Just, just search it in the search bar for Facebook. But we're on those two platforms for social media. Uh, if you want to come visit us, uh, we have way more beer at our tap room. Um, and that's uh, located at, uh, at in, Rock, in Rockland, which is 25 minutes north uh, east of uh, Sacramento, on the way to Tahoe. Uh, North Lake Tahoe. So um, we're not too far outside of uh, Sacramento, hour and a half from uh, uh, the Bay Area. We're, we're pretty accessible. So uh, come give us a visit. Yeah. Cheers. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, we hope you'll uh, hit beerandbrewing.com and click on that subscribe button and join us as a uh, subscriber and supporter of the magazine uh, and by extension, the podcast. Uh, cheers, Derek and Corey. Thanks for joining me. Thank you. Thank you. This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at craftbeerbrew.